welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I am Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This Q&A is from Colmar, Pennsylvania, November of 2018. This is part two. I'll link part one in the description as well as some studies that we mentioned in this Q&A session. Hope you guys like it and thanks for tuning in. Okay, <laughs> next question. People show a clear lack of segmental stabilization and very limited range of motion, aka the general population, which I would not agree with that premise. But Same. Carry on. Uh, what type of programs, assessments do you recommend to build a client into traditional barbell modalities? So, one, I would not assume that people in the general population have a clear segmental stabilization problems. I would attribute that to a cueing problem in general or how you teach exercise. Okay. And I'm not saying that makes you a bad person, a bad coach. I'm just saying that. That has not been my general experience. We've coached lots of completely untrained gen pop novice yeah. people. And my jet, my gestalt, if you will. I will. I will. <laughs> uh, is that most people move just fine. They don't show this clear lack of segmental stabilization uh, with certain load restrictions. The load, yeah, it's the load where they can no longer maintain, you know, their back in position for a deadlift is the point at which you stop going up for the day. Okay. Uh, the question though is what programs do you recommend to build a client into traditional barbell modalities? Most of my training recommendations would revolve around barbells because I like barbells. But, and if someone has access to them, then I'm going to program them. Not because I think there are any unique refining powers of the barbell, <laughs> just because I like them. By the same token, if somebody says, hey, I don't have access to a barbell, I can do leg press, chest press, this, that, and the other, they can live a full and complete life doing machine-based training. Now, if they're a power lifter, that represents a problem. Okay? But if they're not a power lifter, what does it matter? It doesn't. You wrote an entire program about dumbbell training that ended up in our up-to-date article. Yep. And a machine program. And a machine program. All of which, perfectly fine. Yep. The... The second part of your question that I'll answer, then I'll turn it over to Austin. What type of assessments do you recommend to build a client into traditional barbell modalities? I know of no assessment other than the barbell movements themselves that re that represent an accurate assessment. Meaning that if I'm trying to assess whether somebody can squat with the barbell on their back or in a front rack position, the only way that I can determine that is by having them try to squat with the bar on their back or in a front rack position. I cannot have them kneel six inches from the wall and try to push their knee to the wall and say, oh, well, your ankle mobility suggests that I don't give a shit about that because it's not sensitive enough or specific enough to tell me if you can squat the damn bar in a front rack position. It's not, it, even if the test was positive saying, you don't have enough dorsiflexion to do this. I'd still try it. I'd still try it. <laughs> I would still try it because that doesn't tell me anything other than at six inches, if your toe is six inches from the wall, you lack enough dorsiflexion and touch your knee to the wall. That doesn't tell me that you can't front squat or back squat. And when you look at that, the reliability of that test to suggest anything about the squat, you see that just falls apart. So anybody doing that test or recommending that test, Okay, and you'll see this on Instagram. Place your foot six inches from the wall. Then try to touch your the tip of your kneecap to the wall. And that tells you if you have enough dorsiflexion in your ankle to squat properly. When you see that, block them. <laughs> just block them. Because they've, they've just shown you, they've just shown you they don't know what they're talking about. All right? And you can just ignore the rest of their crap. 
And it saves you from this, hmm, they said something that I'm not exactly sure about. You know that they're full of shit if that is what they're recommending. Are you done? I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so a few additional points. So when can you read the, the first half of the question again? My other question is about movement analysis. People who show clear lack of segmental stabilization and very limited range of motion, what type of programs and assessments do you recommend to build a client into traditional barbell modalities? Right, okay. So as with the last question, I would reiterate the fact that there is not a clear definition of what good or bad, quote unquote, segmental stabilization is or what that means. Convenient. Right? How do I look at somebody and label them? I don't know what segmental stabilization means in a what we would call clinically relevant, meaning a real world relevant uh, situation is. Additionally, I would suggest that if you have this untrained general population uh, person that you're training, it is completely normal and expected when they start learning these movements or when they start training that you are going to see a lot of sloppiness and inconsistency in their movements, right? And that is going to be labeled, if you're looking for seg lack of segmental stabilization, they're going to look unstable to you, right? They're going to take the bench press for their first rep they've ever done holding a bench, and how is that bar, bar path going to look? They're going to look like this down to their chest, and it's going to look like this on the way up. You're going to say, oh, you have lack of stabilization. You need to train your scapulae. We need to train your rotator cuffs and all this stuff, right? They're weak because they can't stabilize the bar. Well, what if you just let that person keep going for the rest of the set? What are you going to see happen? Be a little less sloppy, a little less sloppy. The second set they come to do by the third set, fourth set, even if you have to do five, ten sets, things look clean, right? That is the process of motor learning. Motor learning is a very complex process, the neurological system learning these new movement skills. And it has been shown that allowing for that high degree of movement variability meaning allowing the person to explore different movement strategies and learn and experiment with what the best way or most comfortable way is for them to move results in more rapid learning than restricting them to this very rigid motor pattern and saying, you must move this particular way. Does that make sense? It's just like when a kid learns to walk, right? You don't force a kid to you can only walk this one way, otherwise you're not allowed to walk. Yeah, Aerosmith did that. Right? You let a kid bobble around, <laughs> you let a kid fall over, you let a kid practice holding his head up on his shoulders, right? And they explore their physical world, and over time those movements get refined, they get better, they look more smooth, normal, that's your brain learning. So I wouldn't call that an issue with segmental stabilization, particularly in the novice land, not only because I can't clearly define what that means, normal or abnormal, right? Because sometimes I might get a little out of position, quote unquote, when I'm lifting. Does that mean I'm unstable? I don't know what good or bad stabilization means. But in addition, in this novice population, it's even harder to define because they don't have these well-refined movement patterns and that motor learning uh, process by which you explore all these different movement strategies of how am I gonna pick this thing up? Or what? How, does I, how do I sequence my motor unit firing to pick this deadlift up off the floor? It's not a conscious process, it's a subconscious process that their movement centers in their brain are working out the first time you decide to try a new skill, right? Who looks perfectly smooth, clean, refined the first time you try a new skill? Athlete. If we took everybody here at the Barbell Medicine Seminar and say, hey, we're gonna go learn tennis serves after this. How do you think they would look with you guys? It would look horrible. 
we say, oh, it's because you don't have adequate shoulder stabilization to execute the movement and sure. need to do this. Thing. It's like, no, it's just because you haven't practiced it. You just need to learn how to do it. We've had, I know of at least one person at this seminar and who I had on a platform. I know there are others who have not trained with barbells before attending here this weekend. I taught her how to press overhead. Her first set, particularly with a training bar that was 15 pound aluminum training bar, it was way the hell all over the place, just like I expected. Did I cue her to stabilize her bar more effectively or to worry about her bar path or things like that? No, I just said, hey, let's do another set. Let's do another set. And it fixed itself without any specific need for coaching for me other than, hey, keep the bar close to your face. That's the only thing I had to say. By the end of the set, she had a nice, smooth press straight up overhead. Motor learning took place in those 10 minutes, 20 minutes that we were doing that. We didn't have to worry about segmental stabilization or weak muscles or strong muscles or tight muscles or loose muscles or anything else like that. And I would echo Jordan's uh, argument about assessments that I didn't have to do any assessments on her to see if she could reach overhead. If she had issues with That's malpractice with internal impingement of her, of her shoulder or same with anybody else that I have to pre assess them to be able to do something. You just do it. The risk is undetectably low of just, Hey, trying to do a body weight squat. What's the big deal. You don't have to do any of these tests. What's the big deal with body weight squats. <laughs> you just don't need to do it. The risk is low and those tests are not particularly meaningful. Yeah. It's another example of an unnecessary test that is difficult to interpret. Doesn't really predict much of note. Doesn't really rule anything out of note. You just need to get them doing it and see how they do. What testing do you normally do before training? Zero for your own training. What do you mean testing? Like you test yourself before you train. No, I get under the bar. Okay. What about for clients? Nope. Same. I ask them what their medical history is. <clears throat> yeah. And if they have any history of injury. Yeah. And what their goals are. That's well, my testing before coaching. Somebody. That and a stool sample. That's all. That's <laughs> all. <laughs> Gotta check that gut health. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just want to make sure that, that we've evacuated re recently. You know? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Besides reading the suggested further reading, what is the best approach for expanding our knowledge base in a world where everyone has an opinion? Oh, so this is great. Uh, don't read blog posts except ours. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I, I say this, I say this because, uh, if you look at a million blogs, hundred percent of them are going to be trash. The statistical error in that hundred percent represents the blogs that are good. There are a handful of good ones. Greg Knuckles is great. I like ours. I like stuff to share publishes in general. Um, uh, you know, Alan, uh, Alan, uh, what's his name? Flan Flanagan. Flanagan. Yeah. He's helping. He's going to write some stuff for us. Yeah. Writes great stuff. There's a small proportion of blogs that are good. Now, if you're getting most of your information from blogs, stop it. That's a problem because if you have not read enough of the literature to understand some claims being completely ridiculous, then you cannot assess the validity of a blog's claims or their arguments. In which case, stop reading that crap and you have to go to the literature. Or you say, you know what? I am not a professional in the exercise science space. I do not have time for this. So I am going to trust a smaller group of people and hope that ethically they are responsible sure. and will lead me on the right track. So if you are a professional in another field, you do not train people for money. Okay. My recommendation would be to trust us and other folks like us. Okay. And maintain your skepticism, but understand that you lack the resources to go out and really try to learn all this stuff. Yeah. Cause that would be an exercise in futility. Uh, 
if you are an exercise professional and you're trying to learn this stuff on your own, I feel like you have to turn to the primary literature, okay? You have to delve deep, deeply, and you have to stay out of blogs and forums and Instagram <laughs> posts because that those are the wrong mediums to learn. And until you have read enough to have a general sense of, you know, a lot of these tangential fields to strength conditioning, you cannot evaluate that with a critical eye. And all it is is a waste of time, Okay. It's a waste of time, and it's stuff you'll have to unlearn later. Yeah, so ideally, you can read the literature. I think we had a question similar to this at the Seattle yeah. seminar where we talked about if you can't do that, pursuing some degree of formal education to yes. help you do that, whether that means like a master's degree or some sort to, to get you in touch with the people who can guide you through the process. Other things that I've talked about in response to this question at some other seminars relates to uh, some of the solid uh, research review products out there. Some folks put out some decent research reviews that can be kind of an on-ramp to the literature. Sure. The issue is you can't just read the review. You have to read the actual thing. I would argue that you can read the actual thing, come up with your idea of what's going on, and then read their interpretation to see, hey, how close was I or was I wildly off? Yep. So mass is a solid research review for strength and conditioning stuff. Sure. I know Alan Aragon has his nutrition thing. James Krieger has a nutrition thing. Uh, we have uh, Mike has been doing things where he sends out pain and rehab focused uh, research literature as well as some discussion of it. So there's some kind of on ramp type things. Yes, we just and then, we just expanded ours, which is nice to cover more training topics. And the idea is to as we build the base of audience, that we increase the production quality. Of the research review that we're yeah, in. effectively yeah. just makes it longer. We could do, devote more resources to sure. it. Yeah. But yeah, I agree that the re, like using these sort of packaged research reviews kind of can help that learning curve. If yeah. you're willing to read the paper or the 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 you know thing that's being discussed. Yeah, yeah. So I think it really just comes down to reading more. And if you need help finding things to read, you can just follow me on Twitter. I don't care how many followers I have, but I retweet most of the things that I read, because that's where I basically follow research leaders or thought leaders in a given field. And they all like to show off their stuff. So it pops up. I see it. I'm like, oh, that looks interesting. I'll follow it and then I'll share it. I use that basically as my own bookmarking service. So I can go and I can look through all the things I've retweeted and I can say, oh, I wanted to come back and read this, 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 this. And I, you know, go back and do that. So if you want to see what I'm reading, you can go there and get notifications or whatever, and you'll see what I'm reading and you can kind of get some exposure to these leaders in these particular fields. Cause I'm not a researcher, but I go to them to find the things that I like to read and learn from. And that's what I end up turning into our content, translating the research world into stuff for the general public or into our practice. So, yeah. All right. Uh, theory behind exercise selection, such as why is pause squats? Pause squats. Why? <laughs> uh, so, so again, the idea behind exercise ver ver uh, variety, is, there's multiple different angles to this. Angle number one, you are trying to pick exercise variations if you have a very specific goal like a powerlifting meet that allow you to train with the correct volume, the correct intensity without creating too much fatigue that you can no longer manage. So... If you did the same variation over and over and over again, all right, potentially you would have to do either a higher volume or higher intensity uh, and that would subsequently outstrip your ability to tolerate that amount of fatigue that you're generating. That's thing one. All right. And, and the closer that the two variations that you're comparing are, the more carryover <laughs> there is of the repeated bout effect. So, for instance, the pause squat has a high amount of carryover from the regular squat to the two-count pause squat. So, it's not like it's a completely new exercise. It's kind of the same. 
That's why you don't get sore the first time you do a pause. Correct. Which is why it doesn't necessarily jack up the fatigue, even though you're doing it at relatively challenging loads. It's you've already seen it before. Uh, but the load is usually lighter on paused variations or pin variations or tempo variations, which ultimately decreases the amount of fatigue and stress that's generated from that particular exercise. The other thing might decrease psychological stress. If you're really using this from a stress management or fatigue management sort of standpoint, you need some amount of variation, which is going to be different across individuals as far as how often you're changing the variation and to which variation you are selecting in order to continue to drive strength and hypertrophy outcomes. Okay. So how often do we change variations? That depends. I've ran the same variation in folks successfully for eight weeks, nine weeks at a time. And I change it as often as two or three weeks in some other folks. Okay. I use exercise variations as load management tools and then as potentially to try to goose hypertrophy and strength outcomes uh, such that people aren't getting a decreased response to them. I think there's, this is something we talked about before, there's definitely some psychological benefits there as well. Um, hey, it's fun to PR on a new exercise you haven't done before, or you haven't PR'd in a while, right? Oh, I just set a new PR set of five on my pause squat versus just doing a light regular squat day, right? That's different in the athlete's brain, how they interpret it, build some, build some confidence and they can carry that forward into the next session. They got some good momentum. I'm PRing all my variants doing things are going great. That's cool too. And then I think there may be something to be said, uh, from a, an injury risk reduction standpoint, uh, exposing, exposing lifters to a slightly greater variety of movement patterns instead of kind of locking them in to one movement sure. pattern that they're going to keep doing indefinitely. Um, which has some load management issues independent even of just the weight itself, but you can think of the load as perceived by the tissues that are being moved through the same movement pattern over and over and over again. We're introducing some variation uh, may kind of reduce the risk for these so-called overuse injuries, which I don't know how much I like that terminology, but something along those lines kind of uh, from a load management, fatigue, pain, uh, and injury risk standpoint, I think there's likely to be some, some benefits from that standpoint. Mike, give me a nod or a shake of your head. Which part? That and that last part. Yes, I already heard you. All right, cool. Definitely for the overuse part. The overuse. All right, cool. We're good. <laughs> uh, what machine and or isolation exercises are useful? I mean, you just black out. What happened? Any of them? <laughs> any of them or none of them? <sighs> I would not say none of them. No, that's the answer. Well, for for so for instance, so for instance. I like programming the leg press in non-specific training blocks sure. for power lifters, sure. not under the guise that it improves their squat performance on the platform. Rather, it is a placeholder that may improve muscle cross-sectional area. And Which then, can then be utilized in the context of squat. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I've done the same thing with leg presses. I've used machine kind of chest presses. I've used, you know, any sort of T-bar, uh, T-bar row kind of thing, cable rows, lat pull downs, any of that kind of stuff is fine for a general training, muscular hypertrophy kind of standpoint, which, hey, I mean, lean body mass is useful from a variety of standpoints. Including health. In both specific training populations like powerlifters, I think. Sure. Uh, as well as non-specific uh, so, populations because it can be used because hey it's like if 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 this lifter for whatever reason i want to prioritize some some quad development in this athlete i may have a variety of reasons that i want to do that i can jack up the number the amount of squatting they're doing every week that's going to come with a fatigue cost 
that may not be insignificant. Are you willing and to may, pay the cost? And it may influence their ability to train their deadlift, for sure. example. So maybe I'm going to sub some of it out and have them do a bunch more leg pressing or belt squatting or, or something else so that I can spare that fatigue, still train their legs, but give them enough recovery resources and feel fresh enough to pull and not fry their back for the week, so to speak. Fry their to back? overly dramatic language. Wow. Uh, when describing Fry this their back? Yeah, as right. well as their CNS. I, yeah, well, I, fry, I use like coconut. Fry it to a nice al dente. That's right. I use a coconut oil. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The smoke point. Yeah. Uh, all right. What are the main obstacles to a guy in his 50s gaining muscle and strength? Uh, the main obstacles are that somebody's told you that you are old and that you're going to have problems gaining strength and muscle. That's not necessarily true. I think that if you sample the entire world's population of 50-year-olds, that what you'll find is that there's a small percentage of them who over-respond to training. They get too strong, too jacked, and you're like, wow, dude, there's no way that guy's 50. Well, we, we had one at one of our camps. One of my, I think he's 54 or 56. Yes. And he trained for 14 months or he, he did a meet recently. I think it's now probably 18 months after he started training. Uh, completely unexposed to barbells before prior history of wrestling and uh, he squatted 500 and he's hadn't trained before David Rick squatted he over is a freak responder to training had he listened to people who told him you're 56 and you're too old to do this and you can only train twice sure. a week he would have never gotten that far but he trains four times a week uses our templates crushes them squats 500 benches in the 300s he's doing great david rick squats over 700 benches in the 400 well, he's a bit more of an outlier but uh, point well, I'm, just, I'm just saying sure yeah 58 it's possible yes everything's possible like we said the assumption is that you're going to crush it unless yes. you're pr unless proven otherwise we'd rather assume that than assume you're old and broken and can't do this well that's the same way i go into every training session i'm gonna crush this training session yeah until proven otherwise right and i might find that out 20 minutes later that i was wrong it's like <laughs> yeah, yeah i'm not gonna crush okay. it yeah better than the alternative attitude so the biggest the biggest barriers are going to be life because as a 50 something year old person you have more responsibilities that a 20 something year old is unlikely to have and therefore may have to make more compromises i get that that being said, that is an issue that may compromise overall training outcomes. <laughs> that includes nutrition uh, and actual ability to train. But as far as all else being equal, I wouldn't necessarily expect that a older person gets a worse train response than a younger person just based on age alone. The I, I cited a paper recently. It was maybe about two months ago. Yeah, um, I'll have to find it again and maybe write a piece on it. But they basically did one of these. Uh, I think it was based. Might have been based off the. Hakkinen paper, H-A-K-K-I-N-E-N, oh. -E yeah, yeah. I think is the guy's name. Norway. Yeah. And they did a standardized resistance training program, like I talked about during the stress lecture, on a huge cohort of people. And then they stratified these people out. And they looked at, just like you would expect, a spectrum of poor responders to high responders, right? Like we talked about. But then they took the poor responders to high responders and they stratified them out by age. So there was, say, 30 to 40, 40 to 50, 50 to 60. And they re-plotted their gains, both strength and hypertrophy. The relative improvement, the average relative improvement in each group. So think about what that means. The average relative improvement, basically from where they started, how much percent of strength gain or percent hypertrophy gain they got was identical in all of these groups, regardless of their age range. So that means that, hey, yes, maybe we would expect that the younger folks might have a higher starting baseline. So maybe a 12% gain for them represents in absolute terms a little bit more progress than the older guys. But the older guys from where they started, they also made 12% progress from their baseline. 
The relative, so improvement, the relative the improvement was the same in all of these age cohorts. There's beautiful graphs. I cited beautiful. them. Beautiful. But I should probably make that, publish that or something like that I can, on our site. I, Share it on our Link in the description below. Sure. All right. Remind me. I got it. Hacking it. Hacking it. In there. All right. Cool. On it. Let's go. How much cardiovascular work can be done during serious strength training? Starting strength is adamant that none can be done, but I want to see more science to back this up. Challenge accepted. Uh, I am sure an excessive amount cannot be done because I have run the experiment on myself, but I want to see more data points. So right now we have the evidence suggests that if you, it's three times a week, 30 minutes per session of cardiovascular activity has minimal to no inhibition of any strength related outcomes. That's what the data suggests right now. Okay. The position that any cardio that you do will compromise strength outcomes is incorrect, unsubstantiated, and harmful. How many people in here have a BMI over 30? Okay, yeah, me too. All right. <laughs> Some of us will need to do conditioning. And the if you put the idea out there that conditioning is going to compromise your strength gains, okay, and say, yeah, don't do it, don't worry about it, that's potentially harmful to a group, to some non-zero amount of folks who are listening to your advice, okay? So we the evidence right now suggests if the conditioning is less than 30 minutes and three times or less per week, Minimal inhibition for strength and hypertrophy improvements. That being said, we would never go from zero to three real quick, right? Drake said we should go slower than that. So I start out with one time, one time per week, 20, 25 minutes, RPE six. You're like, what does RPE six mean? I don't understand for conditioning. I use that to to tell people that you should be able to speak in complete sentences but not sing. It should be more boring than hard. Okay. If you wanted to take a heart rate, 60 to 70% of your max heart rate, if you wanted to calculate that and be super cerebral, but the idea is it's low intensity, steady state cardio, 20 to 25 minutes. You can start out like that, bump it up to 30 before you add a second session. That's how I do it. Okay. But the idea that you can't do cardio that will compromise your strength gains is only valid if your programming is trash. If your programming is trash, all bets are off. Well, I would add that it is only true if all that matters is your absolute strength improvement at the end of that arbitrary amount of time that that program lasts. Well, so sure. let's say that's that the program sure. lasts 12 weeks, right? But you couldn't say that. Don't say that. Well, let's Nine say weeks. that that's your goal is I want to get as strong as I possibly can in 12 weeks. Then maybe then I can make a bit more of an argument, depending on the context, that this person might not need to do conditioning during this specific 12-week period of time. Okay. Maybe, depending on how well they tolerate training, right? Okay. But that is the case for precisely nobody. Yes. Where your entire life's worth as a human is dependent on how strong you get in 12 weeks, right? Everybody cares about their life, their lifelong training career. We've sure. said this before. We don't care about what you squat in 12 weeks. We care about what you squat in five years plus. And if that's what matters, then I don't particularly care if you get 10 pounds, 20 pounds, 30 pounds less on your initial novice training program because... It doesn't matter. It really doesn't. It really, and insofar, because it's not predictive of your long-term success anyway. I feel like we say this every time. Now. Well, it is because people are so concerned. Like, yeah. ooh, I got to 315. Ooh, I got to 320. It's like, it doesn't matter. Until you squat over 500, it doesn't matter. <laughs> if strength is your overall thing, right? Actually, you know, it's funny. The first time I posted on that forum, 
I asked like what was a good squat for 181, and at the time Wade Hooper's best 181 squat was like 640 something. He goes, about 640. And I was like, well, I guess it doesn't matter. My 440 squat is insignificant as a yeah. small child, sure. which is also true because everything's arbitrary. Nothing matters. The point is, the point is that outside of Austin's example, somebody's holding your family ransom and you have 12 weeks to get as strong as humanly possible. I am not concerned about the potential small decrease in strength gains that has not been substantiated in the literature. Well, the the, well, the argument three, assumes the the argument assumes that whatever it whatever progress or whatever strength improvement is not made during that initial phase is lost forever. But it's, no, it's does anybody it's, here think that? Hold there's on, a, I would actually argue that you're going to gain strength by doing the cardio. And here's why: because at the end of this stupid program, you're going to have all this work capacity to actually tolerate legitimate strength conditioning. Does anyone actually make the argument? Lost newbie gains. Lost noob gains. That's what that's the just like that's the justification. Like that's, the forum thing that that's the justification for putting Don't defend them, later Tom. lifters back on the on the novice. Whose side are you on? <laughs> declare your declare your loyalty. Yeah. No, it's been No strong man. No strong man. <laughs> it's been said. Alright. Provide citations. That's that's unfortunate. Yeah. I so my recommendation, YouTube internet seminar folks. Do your conditioning. Do your conditioning. And I can't think of many situations where I'm recommending people to resistance train without restriction, where I would not also recommend at least one time per week of conditioning. Okay? Except for the meat is this week, in which case, maybe you skip it. Cool? All right, moving on. I think we're almost done here. Well. I see that scroll bar down there at the bottom. Yeah, well. All right. Do you know what a Beamer unit is? No. All right. I deleted that question. Okay. All right. Uh, how would training from uh, differ from your standard templates for a post-novice who enjoys strength training, but who would like to pursue other varied fitness goals throughout the year? Can you say that again? How would training differ from your standard templates for a post-novice lifter who enjoys strength training, but who would like to pursue other varied fitness goals throughout the year? Uh, my, the templates would therefore would start to include think that things specific to whatever that fitness goal is sure to support it so so you know if you're like look i want to go on this hike that's you know it's a 15 kilometer hike up through the mountains i'm going to be carrying this rucksack or whatever so then i would program in rucking i just then, make that your gpp well yeah yeah or your conditioning work yeah not like 15k right off the bat but yeah work up to it but I would still train with weights if you're generally interested in strength training uh, or whatever the goal is. I would incorporate some specific, uh, you know, training tool to, to, yeah. to work towards that. And I might not use something that has a heavy emphasis on singles. hundred percent. Which you guys now understand because you guys shouted out these answers during the programming lecture. You guys get it. <coughs> the degree of specificity that's necessary for one RMs is not particularly relevant in this situation. Two uh, more. Two more. I train my mom and she has hypothyroidism. She has a hard time losing weight, even though her levels are good. Was wondering if there is anything I could be doing to help her lose weight. We strength train three times per week and do 15 minutes of high intensity interval training three times per week. If she has uh, a well-controlled hypothyroidism, then she needs a greater calorie deficit in order to lose weight. It, she doesn't need more thyroid medication. She either needs more of a calorie restriction 
or more conditioning. So what could you do to help her? You could do the conditioning with her to encourage her to participate. You could make all of her meals. You could tell her she needs to eat a greater calorie deficit. And as long as she understands that, then you've done your job. Yeah, I think that uh, there are, of course, some medical issues that can contribute to weight gain and obesity. And it's very, very commonly thought that, oh, my hormones are off and that's why I'm obese. I think the overwhelming majority of times when we evaluate these sorts of things, that's not the case. There's not a hormonal reason why it's, why it's present. Uh, sometimes we do find thyroid issues, which when treated, when treated to good levels of control and no symptoms of hypothyroidism, I don't necessarily view that as a special case or a special population anymore. What I mean is they still need to generate a calorie deficit. And if they're not losing weight, what does that mean? Not in a calorie deficit. So I think that some education is in order because there are biological factors related to obesity, weight gain, there are psychological factors, there are social factors. If she is under the impression, if she is, believes that because she has hypothyroidism, that she, that this is going to be an arduous journey, that it is impossible for her to lose weight. She has lots of, lots of ideas that have been put in her head by the internet, by doctors, or by people she knows, friends, family, acquaintances, etc. It's just going to make the whole process harder than it needs to be. And remember the role of what we call dietary RPE. The harder the process is, the less likely it is that somebody's going to be able to, to adhere to it. So just like we talk about, you know, special populations or the lack thereof in the context of training, I don't consider treat well-treated hypothyroid patients to be a special population when it comes to nutrition or when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, dieting, fat loss standpoint, still need to generate a calorie deficit. Uh, it's not, I don't think that, you know, a, if they're in a 500 calorie deficit, but they have hypothyroidism, they're not going to not lose weight, still going to lose weight, right? It's just a matter of maintaining that good control, good control of their, of their medical issue. Um, so yeah. I'm in. All right. Last one. Austin's thoughts oh. on NKT. <laughs> I don't care what Jordan thinks about this. Neurokinetic therapy, mobility protocols, and or Kelly Starrett's protocols for soft tissue therapy. So since you asked for my opinion, <laughs> <laughs> I think that you already know what we think. They're all bullshit. Okay. <laughs> They're addressing only part of a potentially uh, causative mechanism as far as these biological issues contribute to the pain experience, but those don't reliably cause pain. They don't address the psychology behind the deal. They don't address social causes, and they don't even reliably address the biological cause either. They arguably, I don't know what neurokinetic therapy is. Maybe Mike, go ahead, fill me in. Uh, no. Okay. So it, it, I mean, is it inventing Ooh, a problem flash. where there isn't one? Don't do that. As though. I suspect. What is Get it? A picture you want to do? It? Jesus Christ. So, yeah. Muscle imbalances? <laughs> muscle. Yeah. <laughs> The body in its most optimally tuned state is imbalanced at every single level, meaning that muscles on the front side of the body are stronger than the muscles on the back side of the body. You have leg lengths that are different, arm lengths that are different. Your digits are not all the same length. Holy shit. 
<laughs> that is you at optimal condition. Trying to balance your entire body habitus is a mistake. It's a fool's errand. Not only can you never achieve this, but if you did, you'd be the worst performing human in the history of performance. It's the worst. <laughs> All right, uh, now that they asked for your opinion. Oh, hold on, I'm not done yet. No, we're talking about Kelly Starrett. He's not relevant anymore, is the point. Uh, uh, Kelly Starrett has made millions of dollars off telling people that, hey, not only can I improve your range of motion, but by improving this range of motion with these top secret proprietary stretches you can only get with my low, low price, or this, you know, uh, a monthly fee of $19.99 where you put a band around, you know, your neck and then hang yourself from a a chin-up bar. What's that? Yeah, yeah, you got to release your neck, right? Your neck's tacked down. It's matted down. Um, the idea is that you have a problem with your musculoskeletal system that's causing pain. Not even not even that you have a problem with it, but that you must do this for maintenance is his is Oh, sure, his, right. His well, yeah, thing. basic, you, you basic. Must do, you must do self-maintenance. Otherwise, you're prone to mechanical failure which at is, any time. Which is bullshit. Well, they all know this now. They've been immunized. Yes, we've ner- yes, we've immunized the entire community here. I provided you guys with useful resources on the pain, injury, rehab side of thing in your books. If you want to follow that rabbit hole, learn more about it, maybe become more educated yourself and potentially share this stuff and help immunize other people. Maybe we can develop herd immunity against Kelly Sarrett. That's like a dream world. Oh, man. Is, is, is herd immunity against this bullshit where you know, a sufficient amount of the population understands how pain works and knows what's bullshit to the point where they can't survive or proliferate. That's oh, like, oh man, wow. That's mind, a utopian mind, barbell mind medicine world. world that yeah, I it's never going to happen, unfortunately, but hey, we'll do our best. Maybe, in, yeah, need a good flu, <laughs> need a good flu to come along because none of them got immunized. So, fact. <laughs> yeah, you know that? Yeah. All right. Is that it? I think that's it. All right. YouTube, Colmar, Instagram, wherever you're catching this, iTunes. Thanks for tuning in. You guys have been great. We'll catch you guys next time. All right. That's a wrap from Colmar, Pennsylvania. We've got more material on the way. Just wanted to release this guy to you. If you could do us a favor, head over to iTunes, leave us a positive review. We'd really appreciate it. And thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you guys next time.